Would you pray with me, please? Father, when it looks like things in this world are spinning out of control, as if there is no guaranteed future, as if that future is up in the air, we thank you that we can read the end of the book and you win. And you win for your people and you win with your people. And that our forever as your people is settled and nothing and no one can touch that or stop that or change that. So thank you for being our God. And our King, and I thank you that there is one, Jesus, who is worthy to open the scroll, the title deed to this universe, and to guarantee for his people a future and a hope. And may we worship him well now, and how we listen to your word preached. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated this morning. It is our privilege to have Ryan Carp with us. Ryan is a Jewish follower of Jesus. Ryan met his wife, Jessica, while both were working in Jewish missions. Ryan has served with Chosen People Ministries since 2004. Now, Chosen People Ministries is a, a ministry dedicated to praying for, evangelizing, and discipling, and serving the Jewish community. Ryan is regularly engaged on college campuses and innovating ways to help Jewish young people encounter Jesus. He endeavors to raise up young missionaries through training and creating internships. Ryan has a bachelor's in Bible from Philadelphia Biblical University and a master of arts in Bible from Capital Bible Seminary. And if you were here during our first hour, our Sunday school hour, you know your heart is going to be blessed through God's word and through Ryan leading us to understand it better. So Ryan, come and share God's word with us. Good morning. That wasn't very good. Good morning. That was better. How about this one? Shalom. You know what shalom means, right? Peace. Very good. Well, I just want to thank you so much for allowing me to share my heart and my ministry uh, with you this morning, both in Sunday school and also here. I love when I get to do both because then I get to share a little bit more. Let me tell you a little bit more about myself and then we'll get started with the message. I'm also currently working on a PhD, so God willing, in a few years, I will have a PhD. Um, and it's all to reach Jewish people with the gospel. Um, I was raised in a mixed marriage household. And a mixed marriage household, the way that you know it is in my culture, means you have one Jewish parent and one non-Jewish parent. And when you hear that someone has one Jewish and non-Jewish parent, what's the question they want to ask? What was my religion, right? Let's get a little bit more practical. What was it? What's the question you really want to know? Well, you guys are really serious here. The question is, is it Christmas or Hanukkah? Right? Right? That's really what you want to know. And the answer is yes. December was amazing in my house, especially uh, because I was an only child for a long time. And so I was raised in this mixed marriage household, 
Uh, but I came to faith at about the age of 10, and then I became a teenager. Any teenagers in the room? Woo! Enthusiasm. All right. Anybody have a teenager? Good. Anybody ever been a teenager? Okay, good. You all understand this. Let me ask you this. How much do teenagers think they know? Right. How much do they actually know? Aww. Come on, guys. I want to defend the teenagers for a second, okay? As I grew out of my teenage years, I was very surprised at how much my parents learned. Okay, good. It's a little bit of a thinker. So I was a typical teenager. Um, you know, I, I fell hook, line, and sinker for the media. And when I say I fell hook, line, and sinker, I mean they told me in order to feel good about myself... I should do fun and crazy things and not really worry about the consequences. And the more I did that, the more bad decisions I made, the more mistakes I made, the wrong crowds I got into. And really what happened is, thank God I didn't make really bad mistakes, but what happened was sort of in my mind and in my emotions. Because I really wanted to feel good about myself and I wanted to feel value and I wanted to feel worth. But when you start doing things so that you get the approval of other people, because that's really what you care about, you find out two things. Number one, people are not willing to give you their approval readily. And number two, when you do receive somebody's approval or they like you or they laugh at your joke, it feels good for about a split second. And it's a very fleeting feeling. Because then you have to pursue somebody else and their approval of you. And so after doing this, I started to spiral. Because I was so desperately concerned in what everybody thought of me. So by the ages of 17 to 19, I was a shell of a person. And in every social situation, I was so desperately worried about what everybody thought. And so whenever I said anything after the situation, I would think, was that stupid? Was that smart? Did they like that? What do they think now? And then I would try to make it better, and that only made it worse. And so I finally found myself screaming profanities at the top of my lungs at 2 a.m. in the middle of a townhouse development in suburban Washington, D.C., which is where I'm from. And I get cops called, and my friends get in trouble. And then they get patted down, and we all get sat on a curb, and we are accused of all this bad stuff going on in the area. And when you care so much about what everybody else thinks, and your friends, your very friends, get mad at you, that feels horrible. And so I finally went to my parents, and I said, look, I don't want to live this way anymore. So they introduced me to a friend of theirs who discipled young men. And for the first time, I really started opening this book. And I realized I had been living a lie. And the lie was this, I thought I needed to manufacture and accrue any sort of value and worth for myself by the way that other people thought of me. And in reality, when I put my faith in Christ, he had given me an overwhelming, overflowing sense of worth and an actual value because he dwelled inside of me. And that changed my outlook on life because it was no longer that my glass was half empty. My glass was overflowing and I decided I wanted to sort of get with the Lord better and I wanted to learn more. And then I had this crazy idea that people in the Bible went out into the wilderness and met with God. And so I said, Lord, can I please do that? Go somewhere, refresh and come back and start new. The very next day at my college, it said in sidewalk chalk, free trip to Israel. I thought, okay, well, that's, that's pretty good, Lord. So I called up and I said, can I go on this trip? 
And the woman said, yeah, you can go. Are you Jewish? Yes. Have you been on the trip before? No. Are you under 24? Yes. So I signed up for this trip. I made one rule for myself. Don't offer that you believe in Jesus. If they, don't, if they ask, don't deny him. But just don't offer it. Because I knew that it was going to be a problem. Like I knew my people well enough that Jesus and Jewish people don't always get along like oil and water. To make a long story short, we leave on December 25th, because that's the day you leave for Israel as a Jewish trip of college students, and we get to Israel, and four days in, I break my own rule. I offer that I believe in Jesus in a very small way to a few people, and their response was to kick me off the trip. So I get home. My father picks me up from the airport, and the first question he asks is, are you angry at them? And I thought for a moment, and I said, Dad, I'm not angry at them. And by the way, they're not them. They're us. I said, but I am confused about one thing. He says, what's that? And I said, well, I don't understand why my people would reject me. I was more, quote, unquote, Jewish on that trip than everybody else. And he goes, how is that possible? (laughs) And I said, well, Dad, like, you know, we... You know, we observe the Sabbath. Um, we don't eat pork or shellfish. You know, I was bar mitzvahed. I love, you know, chopped liver and bagels. Like, very Jewish, right? <laughs> and he started laughing. And I said, I just don't get why they would reject me. And then that's the moment, that's the second time that the Lord changed my life in a very short amount of time. I realized that my people didn't reject me. My people rejected him who was living in me in their midst, our Savior. And that's when my heart broke into a million pieces. And that's something that you can't teach in Evangelism 101, right? You can't say, I have a broken heart for the lost, and they desperately need to know their Savior. And so I set out to learn this Bible better, to learn him better, to get to know him so that I could more effectively reach the Jewish people with the gospel. And that's when I changed my major and went to a Bible college. That's a little bit about me. Chosen People's been around since 1894. We have missionaries in 18 countries. I'm a missionary here in Chicago. I'm also the Chicago director and the Midwest regional director, which means I get to work with and oversee a lot of really wonderful missionaries and volunteers. And let me just tell you, the Lord has been working in our ministry over the last two years. We've been seeing people come to faith. We are discipling more people than we have in the last 10 years. And things are really exciting. And at times I feel like I'm holding on instead of steering the ship. And that's okay. I absolutely love it. I'm going to tell you a few stories about some outreach and some Jewish uh, evangelism stories as we go along this morning. Let me pray as we begin, because Pastor Ken told me I had to be done by 1.30, so <laughs> you're still with me. Good. Avinu Vamalkeinu, our father, our king. I, uh, I love the quote from, from Revelation that was read this morning, and I echo it. We praise you and we honor you, Lord. I'm also reminded that there are ones in your midst who say, Kadosh, 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 Adonai Tzivaot. Holy, holy, holy are you, Lord of hosts. So, Lord, please bless us as we open your word this morning. Please make the words from my mouth, not my own, but yours. And please inspire the reading of your word. B'Shem Yeshua, in the name of Jesus. Amen. My father um, is a pretty incredible guy. 
But there was one morning that he was arguing and yelling so much with my mother, I had never seen it like this before. I was about eight years old, and we got in the car yelling. We got dressed before that, yelling. We had breakfast, yelling. We got in the car and drove to this place that I had never been to before on a Sunday morning, yelling. And it was all because, in hindsight, the enemy was out to get my family. I was, I was uh, the oldest of two. I was eight, and my sister was an infant. My father had been invited by his boss to a little Baptist church outside of suburban Washington, D.C. His, his boss said something like, there's going to be a Jewish guy talking about Jesus Christ and Passover this week, and I'm supposed to invite my Jewish friends. Would you like to come? And when your boss invites you, you don't say no. But I had never seen my parents fight like this. So we get into the church, and we didn't know, but it was Palm Sunday. So we sit in the back because we're late. My parents didn't even want to get out of the car, except that his friend was waiting. As we were late, the service was starting, waving from the door. You can't leave when they start waving, right? So my dad gets in. We get into the service. We sit in the back. I don't know what we're doing there. I had never been to a church before. And there's this Jewish man presenting about Passover in the front of the building. And this Jewish man was just like my dad. Grew up in the same area, went to the same schools, bar mitzvah, just like my dad. Grew up pretty Jewish, just like my dad. But he said something that was really interesting. He said that the Passover that he was demonstrating not only reminded us of what God did for us in the land of Egypt through the prophet Moses, but also foreshadowed what Christ was going to do. And since Christ came, died, and resurrected, reminded us of what he did. And as he presented this in a very Jewish way, My father's jaw hit the floor, and that morning in that church, a Jewish man gave his heart to Christ. Amen, right? But it wasn't my dad. It was another Jewish guy brought by his friend. My dad instead ran down the aisle. My dad's a big dude, okay? He's a big guy. He ran down the aisle. And to this day, the man who met my dad at the front, that Jewish man, said, Ryan, I thought your father was going to deck me. My dad is rumbling down an inclined, you know, sanctuary floor at the very end, sticks his finger in that man's face and says, you're dead wrong. Jesus is Christian and Passover is Jewish. They'll never mix. Pastor Ken, you have anybody rush you at the end of the service before? Not yet, he said. That sounds like a challenge. No. So that, that begs the question. When someone comes up to you with the gospel, what do you say? When someone comes up to you with the gospel, what do you say? Some people will turn very briefly to do the Romans road thing, right? A couple verses in Romans. Some will talk about what Peter said in Acts chapter 2, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. Some will talk about Romans 10, which we read earlier this morning. But turn with me to to, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Because this morning what we're going to talk about is essentially the gospel in the Old Testament. The gospel in the Old Testament. I know that sounds kind of funny, But usually when you go share the gospel with somebody, you're going to share the New Testament because the New Testament reflects on things that have already happened. But if the gospel is about Jesus and the Old Testament was written before he came to this earth, well, then why in the world would you go to the Old Testament? Well, we'll see in a second. But let's sort of get the basics of the gospel. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 4. It says this, Moreover, brethren... 
I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand, by which you are saved. So I like how Paul's just trying to reiterate and remind the Corinthians what they believe. If you hold fast to that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ, one, died for our sins, that's point one, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, that's point two, and that he rose again on the third day, according to the scriptures. Died for your sins. I know this is so simple. It's probably a review for everybody, but I want you to understand the points that are significant according to Paul so that when we go to the Old Testament to look for these points, we go, oh, this is the full gospel given. Death for our sins. Burial according to Scripture. Raised from the dead. Now, this should be really full in our minds right now. Why? Because we just celebrated Resurrection Sunday. So if you went to Romans Road, or if you went to 1 Corinthians 15, or if you went to John 3.16, or any number of really wonderful ways to share the gospel, I wouldn't blame you. But suppose you had a Jewish person coming to you. Suppose you had a Jewish person that you know doesn't recognize that the New Testament is the Word of God. How in the world would you share the gospel with them? So let's say you had my dad coming to you. How in the world would you share the gospel with him? Well, every week, my dad would meet with a rabbi after this. Every week, before the days of Google, my dad would read because he knew one thing, or at least he thought he did. You cannot be Jewish and believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They are absolutely incompatible. Why? Because if you know any Jewish people or religious Jewish people, do you, let's, let's do it this way, actually. When Jesus rode into town riding a donkey on the Sunday before he was crucified, what were they saying to him? What were they shouting? Do you remember? Hosanna in the highest. What else? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There's one more. King of Israel. Who did they think Jesus was? The Messiah, right? And what was the Messiah supposed to do in their understanding? Save them from who? The Romans. Nobody said save them from sins, right? Because the expectation was not that the Messiah was saving from sins. The expectation was that the Messiah saves from the oppressor. At that time, the oppressor was Rome and Caesar and Herod and Pontius Pilate. So when they welcomed him in riding on a donkey, this, this sort of humble way but a kingly uh, welcome, they expected him to free them from the oppressors. They expected him to guide them into appropriate worship according to the law of Moses. I wonder how many people welcomed him in, but then turned their back when he was hanging on a cross. I would say probably most. And you know what? Today, the expectation of the Messiah in Jewish thinking is the same, at least for the Jewish people who actually believe that there will be a Messiah. So my dad thought, I have to prove that the Messiah cannot be Jesus because he did not do what the Messiah was supposed to do. 
That's the thought. That's one of the things that you have to overcome. In fact, I remember setting up my book table at at, uh, Grand Central in New York the first year I became a missionary, sort of sort of trembling behind this book table as people are streaming by me during rush hour to go to work in Manhattan and I have all this literature in English and Russian and Hebrew and I'm just like, okay, please, Lord, send a Jewish person toward me so I could talk to them. And they would all ignore me and every once in a while someone would come up but then finally I saw a man in black and white. White shirt, black suit, yarmulke on his head and I thought, he made eye contact with me. This is going to be fantastic. And he started to open his mouth, and I go, this is perfect. Come on over here. Let's tell you about Jesus. But then he lobbed at me a question he thought I couldn't answer. And at the time, I didn't know how to answer it. If he, he wouldn't even say his name, if he is the Messiah, where is the kingdom? Waiting for the Messiah means waiting for him to bring the kingdom. And I didn't know what to say at that point. Now I do. I realize that if you have put your faith in Christ, you believe he's going to bring the kingdom. Amen? Amen. You just know that he's going to bring it the second time he comes. But Jewish people don't believe that he comes two different times. So now when that happens, I say, brother, you're totally right. The Messiah brings the kingdom, but you've missed a few things. So let's go back and see it. And when they give me the opportunity, this is what I do. Turn in your scriptures to Isaiah chapter 53. And actually, the passage begins a little bit before that in Isaiah chapter 52. Look at Isaiah chapter 52, verses 7 and 10. It says this, Isaiah 52, 7 and 10. You'll recognize this one. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. What's another word for good news? The gospel. Who proclaims peace and brings glad tidings of good things. Who proclaims salvation. Who says to Zion, your God reigns. The messenger of the one who brings the gospel is just a wonderful thing. Look at verse 10. The Lord has made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Do you happen to know what the Hebrew word for salvation is? Yeshua. Do you happen to know what the Hebrew word for Jesus is? Yeshua. You shall see the Yeshua, the Jesus of our God. Now, Isaiah 52 starts in this wonderful way, but it's written over 700 years before Jesus comes as a baby. So you got to go, well, maybe it's talking about something else, or, or, or maybe it's talking about something that's already happened. But the reality is what the scholars have done, and rabbis too, is called this the suffering servant. There are a lot of servants in the book of Isaiah. This one's called the suffering servant. And sometimes Jewish people don't know what to do with this chapter. In fact, I used to hand this chapter out when I was doing outreach on college campuses, uh, when it's warm enough, and I would give them this chapter but not tell them where it's from, and they would read it, what we're about to read. And I would say, who does it sound like? And they would say, oh, it sounds like Jesus, it's the New Testament. And I'd go, I totally agree. It sounds like Jesus, but brother, sister... 
It's actually the Old Testament. It's our Bible. And they kind of do one of these. They're looking at it like, how is this? This is exactly, how in the world could this be the Old? Because Jewish people, number one, don't read their Bibles. And how in the world could the gospel, something that sounds so much like Jesus, sit in their Bibles and be there from 700 years beforehand? Well, why is this called the suffering servant? We'll get to that in a second. But rabbis have struggled with this concept of the suffering servant. So much so because they believed, at least some of them, that this actually was the Messiah. And you're probably thinking, wait a second, what we're about to read, if they believed it was the Messiah, then why don't they believe in Jesus? I know. On the other hand, they believe in what Daniel says, that the Son of Man will come riding on the clouds of heaven with power and glory. So which is it? In fact, rabbis have created this story. It's a really interesting story. There are two rabbis, and they're talking about when the Messiah is going to come. This is not actual story. It's a, it's a fable to teach a lesson. And the rabbis say that these two rabbis were arguing, when is the Messiah going to come? How can we get him to come? And one of them says, well, there's Elijah over there, the prophet. Go and ask him. Why would they ask Elijah? Because Malachi chapter 4 said Elijah would come before the Messiah. So one of the rabbis goes to Elijah the prophet and says, Eliyahu, Elijah, when is the Messiah coming? And Elijah responds, today, if you are ready. And the rabbi's a little confused and he goes back to his friend and his friend says, well, what did he say? And the guy goes, I'm a little confused. <laughs> he said the Messiah is coming today. He goes, go back and ask him for clarification. <laughs> so he goes back and he asks Elijah the prophet for clarification. And he says, can you explain that a little bit more? He says, he will come today if you are ready for him. If you are ready for him, if you are holy and righteous, he will come riding on the clouds of heaven. If not... If you are wicked, he will come riding on a donkey. Why do they do that? Because they see these two depictions. They see on one hand, you have the glorious king in Daniel, and on the other hand, you have this humble guy riding on a donkey. But if you're a faithful follower of Christ, you believe both happen, right? But they don't understand why this humble existence if he's supposed to be a king. Look at Isaiah chapter 53, verses 1 through 6. Who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? That's the second time we see the arm of the Lord. Oftentimes, not every time, but often, when you see the idea of arm of the Lord, it refers to the Messiah. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The iniquity of us all. 
Now remember, in 1 Corinthians 15, we saw three things. Death for sins, burial, and resurrection. And we're only talking about sins right here. Jewish people don't normally believe that the Messiah comes to rectify the sin situation, not at least directly. They believe that he wants to lead them to correct worship. I remember one time I was in Baltimore, and I was doing some outreach, and I was talking with this Orthodox Jewish guy, and he was just dumbfounded because, I don't know how we talked about it, I got there, but we were talking about the book of Hebrews, and the book of Hebrews has so many uh, references to the Old Testament that he was absolutely shocked. And so I started sharing the gospel with him in many different ways as long as he was willing to listen. And he finally said, I don't want to answer this anymore. I don't want to talk about this anymore. I said, why not? He said, I don't want anybody to take care of my sins for me. I want to be responsible for my sins. And my mouth was just left agape. I thought to myself, are you kidding me? I said, but brother, don't you know that in the Old Testament we had sacrifices to take care of our sins? How in the world can you take care of your own sins? And he said, well, the rabbis say if we pray and we fast and we do the right things on the Day of Atonement, on the Feast of Trumpets, he'll write us in the Book of Life for another year. I said, yeah, that's what the rabbis say. I said, what does the Bible say? He goes, I don't want anybody else responsible for my sins. I thought, you're kidding me. Who wouldn't want to give their debt to somebody else if they were willing to take it? And yet, in Isaiah chapter 53, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity, the sin of us all. There's the sin part. Look at verses 7 through 9. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken, and they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. There's another story that the rabbis tell, because they can't rectify the idea of a suffering servant and a glorious king. And it's, it goes like this. There's two messiahs. You ever heard of this? Two messiahs. Mashiach ben David and Mashiach ben Yosef. Messiah, son of David, and Messiah, son of Joseph. Why David? Because he was a king. Why Joseph? Because he suffered. And both served their people. So the story goes like this. The Messiah, son of David, is sitting with the Lord. And the Messiah, son of Joseph, is on earth. And the Messiah, son of Joseph, does incredible things and leads the Jewish people almost to the point of victory. But then the enemies of God kill him. You know where they get this from? Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. And they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him. This one little obscure verse. 
And so as he lays dying, Messiah, son of Joseph, as he lays dying, the Messiah, son of David, who sits with the Lord, asks the Lord, please don't let what happened to him happen to me. And eventually the Lord sends the Messiah, son of David, to do the full job that the Messiah, son of Joseph, couldn't do. This is one of the resolutions that they have because they can't figure out the humble and the glorious. And here he is, lying dead. And throughout the years, there have been rabbis that say Isaiah 53 is absolutely about the Messiah. In fact, there's one group of Jewish people. They are called the Chabad Lubavitch. Their headquarters is in uh, Brooklyn, New York. They actually have missionaries to bring Jewish secular people to be more Jewish uh, and to live a more Jewish lifestyle, they actually believe the Messiah, some of them believe the Messiah is a guy named Rebbe Menachem Mendel Schneerson who died about 24 years ago. And they use some of the same passages waiting for his resurrection from the dead. But still, they don't believe in Jesus. Why am I telling you that? Because I desperately want you to understand the depravity of the situation concerning my people and their relationship with God and the Messiah. It is so desperate. They will use the same passages that clearly show that Jesus is our Messiah and they will apply it to somebody else who, by the way, is still in the ground, buried in Queens. So we have sin laid on him and now we have him dead, cut off from the land of the living. So what else is there? It's only the resurrection. Look at verse 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. That's a hard verse right there. The Lord sent his son, and it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief when you make his soul an offerings for sin. Now look at this. He shall see his seed, and he shall prolong his days. How in the world can someone who's dead see some sort of, some sort of uh, good thing coming from his death? And also, how in the world can he prolong his days if he's dead? The only answer is that he rises from the dead. This is revolutionary. Because up until Jesus, including The time of Jesus. Remember, you know how much the kingdom was on the mind of the disciples? When he rose from the dead, even though they fought to try to keep him from being crucified initially, when he rose from the dead in Acts chapter 1, one of the first questions they ask him is, are you now going to bring the kingdom? And he says, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons. This is how much it was on their mind. But this idea in Isaiah chapter 53 that a suffering servant would come and die for your sins... And then rise from the dead. That was a weird concept. And the disciples didn't even get it. When he was sitting at the Last Supper, at the last Passover, he says, I've desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. I don't think they had any clue what that meant. What do you mean before I suffer? Jesus, this is just observing what we do every single year. We remember that God brought us out of Egypt, saved us from slavery slavery, and brought us to freedom. And what he was trying to show them was, yes, but I'm going to bring you from slavery and sin to freedom in me. 
Don't you see it foreshadowed? Keep going. In verse 11, He shall see the labor of his hand and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide with him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and bore the sin of many, and made uh, intercession for the transgressors. This is the death, the burial, and the resurrection, all in one passage, as clean as it gets, and it so eerily is reminiscent of Christ that it can't be ignored. It's too coincidental to be a coincidence. There are lots of people, Jewish people, who will say, one of the reasons we can't believe in Jesus, or one of the reasons I can't believe in Jesus is because of resurrection. That's ridiculous. People don't resurrect from the dead. In fact, this is exactly what my grandmother said. My grandmother, who went to the synagogue every single week with my father and with my grandfather, my grandfather was the president of the synagogue, she said, Jews don't believe in resurrection. That's crazy. After my dad accepted the Lord, this is what my dad said. Mom, Don't you realize that Judaism teaches about the resurrection of the dead? She said, we do? Yeah, Mom. Don't you know every single Saturday morning that we go to the synagogue, we proclaim that God resurrects the dead? She said, are you serious? He said, Mom, it's called the Amidah, the standing prayer. Melech Ozeru Mashiach Umagen. O King, Helper, Savior, and Shield. Baruch Adonai, Magen Avraham. Blessed are you, Lord, Shield of Abraham. You are mighty forever, my Lord. You resurrect the dead. You are powerful to save. He sustains the living with loving kindness and resurrects the dead with great mercy, supports the falling, heals the sick, releases the bound, and fulfills his trust to those who sleep in the dust. Who is like you, mighty one, and who can be compared to you, king, who brings death and restores life and causes deliverance to spring forth? This is not a Christian prayer, although it might as well be. Resurrection from... If, has anybody been to Israel? A couple of you? You've gone, probably gone to the Mount of Olives. On the Mount of Olives today, the place where Jesus uh, prayed before he was taken captive... Do you remember what today the Mount of Olives is? It's a giant cemetery. It's a giant cemetery overlooking the city of Jerusalem. It's a Jewish cemetery. Do you know why? Because we believe in the resurrection of the dead. We believe that when the Messiah comes, the dead will rise. That's what Judaism believes. Does that sound familiar? That's because that's what we believe also. It's just that When that person comes to me and says, if he's the Messiah, where's the kingdom? They're only getting part of the story. The Messiah is told 700 years before he actually gets there that he would die for the sins of our people. That he would be buried and that he would rise from the grave. 
Now, why does this matter to you? Number one, it matters to you on a personal level for me. I want you desperately to share the gospel with the Jewish people you know. I want to help you do that. I want to be a resource. I want to encourage you. I want you to introduce them to me. Why? Because this is pertinent. But number two, I want you to understand, maybe if you're struggling with your faith this morning, this wasn't a faith that came out of nowhere. Sometimes a Jewish person will argue with me, well, maybe Jesus just did what he, he felt that he needed to do according to the prophecies of the Messiah, and, you know, it was just a coincidence what he did, and he's really not the guy. Really? <laughs> it's kind of impossible. But when you have a presentation of something 700 years before it happened, my brothers and sisters, this tells you that God is not haphazard. God planned this all along. The New Testament proclaiming that if we put our faith in Christ because he died for our sins and rose from the grave is not a new thing. It's not an anomaly. It's not a fluke. It is what God always planned. He set this up with the sacrificial system, with the goats and the pigeons and the bulls who died on behalf of the people for their sin. And then we finally get the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This message is possible, but it needs to be shared with my people. We serve the same God in the Old Testament and the New. He planned this ahead of time. He died for our sins, was buried according to Scripture, and rose from the grave so that we could have hope. And this is the reason that I stand firm as a Jewish person in my faith in Jesus. Because he is not only compatible, he is the fulfillment of everything that was told about for our, by our prophets and by God. And I wait for the day when we all, Jewish and Gentile people, meet him because he is risen and he is not still in the ground. Amen? Amen. One more thing before I close. You should have received this brochure when you walked in. I want you to take that out for a second. I want you to do one more. It's an ancient Jewish tradition. We'll do an ancient Jewish tradition together. Open it up fully. Okay? And we're going to do the ancient Jewish tradition of the tear-off. <laughs> All right. That didn't go over well. All right. So on the count of three, we're going to tear it off together. One, two, three. Good. You're all Jewish now. Now circumcision. So this blue one, this blue uh, brochure is for you. It tells a little bit about my wife and me and our ministry. You can put it on your fridge or in your Bible or throw it away, whatever you want. But this one is for me. The side with the clock. Remember, I told you I'm a missionary. My goal is to reach Jewish people with the gospel. I don't come to churches to teach about the Jewishness of our faith. That's not my job. My job is to work with Jewish people and to work with you to reach Jewish people. On the side with the clock, if you know Jewish people who do not yet believe in Jesus, please prayerfully consider putting their contact information and we will do our best to contact them, either snail mail, email, phone number, but do not worry, they will not know it's coming from you. <laughs> On the other side, this is for your information. If you would like more information about what we do uh, at Chosen People Ministries, um, how you can pray, this is a great way to do that. Um, we have opportunities to get involved uh, prayerfully. We have opportunities to get involved in missions, especially if you have young adults, 18 to 30-year-olds, uh, go to Israel or New York City, and other opportunities as well. Um, and I will say this as I close. Uh, because I'm a missionary and my heart is to reach Jewish people with the gospel, I can't do it without your help. 
People like you and like-minded churches like yours have helped us and partnered with us both prayerfully and financially. If you would like to pray for us and get updates, because I can tell you, I just sent an update out about people who have accepted the Lord recently as a result of our ministry. Those people came to faith because I asked churches and individuals like yours to pray for them, so we know that prayer works. Please consider filling out that slip and giving it to to me today uh, before you leave. And to make that a little bit sweeter for you, if you give me a filled out slip, and by the way, there is no financial obligation, but if you give me your information, I will give you this book for free, or I have a couple of others you can choose from, but this one is Isaiah 53 Explained. It's... It's a wonderful resource for you as a believer, and it's a great resource if you have a Jewish non-believer that you can lend it to. And why do you lend it? Because they have to give it back, and then you have to talk to them about it. So, again, give me this slip. I give you that book. There's no financial obligation. Let me pray. Lord, we praise you. Lord, we thank you. We understand that you are not haphazard, that you had a plan all along. That as much as it was difficult, you said it pleased you to bruise him. Lord, I can't imagine what that would have been like seeing that. But Lord, thank you so much that he didn't stay dead. That you raised him from the grave so that we could have hope that his death didn't only give us forgiveness of sin, but his resurrection gave us hope for the future. And we look forward to the day when we do see him riding on the clouds of heaven with power and glory at the sound of the trumpet. And the dead will rise incorruptible. We thank you and we look forward to that day. Lord, until then, please bless this church as they have blessed me. You say in Genesis that those who bless the Jewish people we bless. So I ask you to fulfill that promise because you are a faithful God. Bless this church with every spiritual blessing that you can, that you can muster, Lord. Give them, give them a desire for your word, a hunger for prayer. Give them healing if they need healing. Give them jobs if they need jobs. Restore relationships between husbands and wives, sons and fathers, daughters and, and mothers. Give them every blessing imaginable. In your son's name we pray. Amen.